Who'd have thought supermarkets would play such a big role in the apocalypse? Now wait, this is not a scaremongering podcast, so I'm not suggesting for a moment that our current crisis is an apocalypse. But it has unleashed certainly global fear and tension and obviously deaths. It has pulled our civil servants together and forced them to draw up plans, or revive old plans, for dealing with catastrophe. And so we've seen conference centres turned into emergency field hospitals. We've seen prisoners released early. We've seen schools closed down, aeroplanes grounded. We've seen makeshift mortuaries spring up and the issuing of prime ministerial statements and public information campaigns. Listeners to this podcast will recognise all of those measures from how Britain planned for nuclear war, that other apocalypse we were always waiting for. And of course, the news has been filled with talk of panic buying and the stockpiling of food. Strangely, the public face of our current crisis has been the scenes in supermarkets. Yes, some people are ill at home, some people are ill in hospital, and we wish them the best, of course. But these scenes are private, as are the meetings between politicians and doctors and civil servants as they work out our strategy for coping with it. The public face of it all is the crowds in supermarkets. It's those people reenacting the Black Friday chaos to grab some quilted Andrex. Well, perhaps we fought for the quilted paper at the start. Now I suppose we'll gladly take the scratchy stuff. But yeah, the supermarket's where it's at because an apocalypse or any time of national panic or breakdown or instability focuses our minds in on the essentials. Are my family okay and can I feed them? So today we have a special episode. I've spoken to Professor Lewis Dartnell, author of the recent bestseller Origins, and also of The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Our World from Scratch. The Knowledge asks us to imagine an apocalypse has occurred. The shelves will not be restocked, there's no petrol left in the car, no medicines in the hospitals, no electricity, no clean water gushing from the tap. So how, in that state... Do we begin to rebuild our world? Can we rebuild it? So I asked him, and he was kind enough to talk to us, and I started by asking him about supermarkets. We know from previous episodes here that East Anglia Health Authority planned in nuclear war to send raiding parties to their local supermarkets to strip the shelves of anything useful, including alcohol. But what use is an alcopop in the apocalypse? And what else might they grab from the shelves to help survive and claw back some kind of civilization? So, Lois, um, East Anglia Regional Health Authority planned um, mm. in the days before nuclear war, if we had enough warning, of course, if it wasn't yeah. a bolt from the blue attack, <laughs> to send um, raiding parties out to supermarkets in the area. And they were told to strip the shelves of Obvious things like paracetamols and bandages yeah. and plasters, but they were also told to gather up alcohol um, for medical purposes. Hmm. So, what what use could they put alcohol to? And would there be any point in gathering the more frivolous types of alcohol, like the the, uh, the strawberry flavored beers and the alcopops? <laughs> <laughs> so, actually, I, I talk about this very thought experiment uh, in the knowledge in the book, and you can phrase this 
kind of scavenging and foraging question about what is useful you'd want to get out of a supermarket and how long would it last for. You can rephrase this in a slightly kind of frivolous thought experiment of if I were to take you, Julie, and I was going to lock you in a supermarket for the rest of your natural life and throw away the key, so you're going to spend the rest of your days in a single supermarket, Mm -hmm. how long do you think you could survive for before you'd either eaten all of the food on the shelves or that food had gone off before you could get around to eating it? And as a scientist, I I wanted to work out this answer to, to this thought experiment. So I went into the average supermarket, which very conveniently for me at the time when I was researching the knowledge, I took to be the local Sainsbury's in, in Angel Islington, where I lived at the time in North London. And I went up and down every aisle of this supermarket with pen and paper, counting everything on the shelves getting some very odd looks from everyone else doing their weekly grocery shop, but multiplied all of that edible sustenance and then divide that total by the amount you would need to eat per day. And the answer comes out that a single supermarket could keep one person alive for 55 years. Wow. Or, if you're willing to go to these lengths, or 63 years if you are happy to eat all the canned dog food and cat food (laughs) as well. And I think by that point, Julie, I would go right to one of the aisles and just quickly and cleanly end things for myself and not try to eke out another eight years eating pedigree chum. So it's it's a frivolous example, of course it is. But what I'm trying to get at here, the, the, the kind of core of this particular thought experiment, is that the reason all of us living in the developed world today, living in these modern cities... We no longer fear the coming of winter or a famine or of running out of things to eat because as a society, as a civilization, we've been able to grow food very effectively. But just as importantly, we've worked out ways to preserve that food, to stop bacteria or mold from eating food before a person is ready to eat it. So something like uh, the canning process can preserve edible sustenance for decades after decades. And we've also you know, applied our understanding and our knowledge of Boyle's gas laws. We've exploited science to invent technology to create little boxes of artificial winter. That's all a fridge or a freezer in your home is. It's a little box of artificial winter to slow things going off. Mm. So I think in, in this scenario that we're both talking about, a, a post-apocalyptic, scavenging, foraging-type wasteland, as long as the people have disappeared quickly enough, there'll be enough stuff just left lying around in the abandoned, deserted supermarkets that food isn't going to be um, absolute priority. It's not going to be the very top of your post-apocalyptic to-do list. You can dine out on the leftovers of the civilization that came before us. But the more interesting question that you were getting at there is, well, okay, Lois, how long would other things last for? How long would pharmaceuticals remain uh, effective? And there was a study that I quote in the knowledge run a couple of years ago by the US military because they wanted to know, did they actually have to keep replacing their entire stockpile of pharmaceuticals and drugs when basically the best before date came up, Mm. or could they keep it for another five years, another 10 years, and it still be effective? And that would save them a huge amount of money. So they tested 
loads of different kinds of drugs of kind of anesthetics and antibiotics and pain pain relief medication um and on the whole things were absolutely fine well beyond their best before date their, their kind of shelf life and in particular things like antibiotics were still efficacious were still effective at their job and hadn't degraded into compounds which were toxic after 10 20 perhaps even 30 years so you ought to be able to scavenge drugs that you need as long as they've been kept cool mm. and kept dry and particularly with like modern blister packs where each individual pill is in its own little bubble of protective atmosphere uh, those things should last for a very long while as long as they're kept cool and dry mm-hmm. but you can also apply a bit of ingenuity and resourcefulness you, you can use a bunch of post-apocalyptic life hacks and use everyday items in new and ingenious ways to keep yourself alive and fit and healthy in, in a hypothetical post-apocalyptic wasteland and so in a world without the nhs in the world without healthcare, where if you do yourself some damage and you simply cannot dial 999 for an ambulance to whisk you away and for some doctors using high-tech medicine to magically make you better, you've got to be able to look after yourself. And if you've opened up your skin, if you've given yourself a nasty gash or a wound, your top priority is stopping that bleeding and preventing an infection establishing itself in the wound But because that will finish you very, very quickly if you can't get access to modern antibiotics. And so you can use something like uh, superglue to seal together the two lips of that wound very, very quickly and very, very effectively. You're kind of hacking that superglue for a for new purpose. But, but in fact, um, that's what the, the chemical compound of superglue was used for in the Vietnam War, for soldiers to patch themselves up quickly to then be evac'd and, and get back to hospital. Something like booze as well, something like alcohol, can be really useful, can have a really good function for you because it's a really good antiseptic so you could try taking something like a bottle of vodka, a bottle of vodka and splash it over a wound before sealing it up to try to clean out uh, the infection again or other kind of antiseptic uses you might need and in fact we're seeing a lot of that resurging right now you know kind of um, march april 2020 with the coronavirus global pandemic because a lot of the supermarket shelves have gone bare of hand sanitizers so although soap is the absolute best way of washing your hands and cleaning away dirt and bacteria and viruses alcohol-based hand sanitizers will work if you've got another option if you're out and about and just need something in your handbag but the hand sanitizers have, have been selling out so people have been trying to use alcohol like vodka mixed with a kind of gelling agent and and you could in principle just use uh, lubricant you could use sexual lubricant sex gel with vodka to make a kind of a impromptu uh, hand sanitizer the concern though is that the alcohol needs to be as high concentration as you can get your hands on something like a 40 percent vodka which is what most spirits are isn't actually high enough to be particularly effective you need you want something that approaches nearer 70 or 75 percent so if you were in, in a post-apocalyptic survival scenario you could set up a simple sill for yourself to distill vodka to a higher alcohol percentage and then start using that for its medical abilities and not just for its party party making abilities
Now, um, Lewis, if we imagine them, um, the NHS sending out a, a scavenging party to the local Sainsbury's, mm. is there anything else they could grab from the shelves in terms of healthcare apart from the medicines, uh, the alcohols and the super glue? Yeah, so I, I, I would recommend, if you were in this hypothetical world, to not just secure yourself a clearly reliable source of food, um, but medication, so the sort of things that you're likely to need, like uh, antibiotics, painkillers. Um, if, if you suffer from hay fever, you would want to grab some of that. And the sort of other things we've been talking about, which you can use in ingenious new ways, like superglue um, or alcohol, you could use. But there are actually other ingenious life hacks that you can use to keep yourself healthy. And in particular, what you want to be able to do after an apocalypse when the infrastructure behind modern civilization has collapsed and disappeared. And for example, the taps no longer flow with clean drinking water. You need to know how we can use science for a fact that, that your water you're about to put your lips and drink isn't going to kill you, that it's not laced with cholera or typhoid or any number of, of dysentery-causing disease, which has been the scourge of humanity for thousands of years. And all you would need to scavenge in this post-apocalyptic world to cleanse drinking water is an empty plastic bottle. And you put your suspect water into that plastic bottle and you just leave it out in the sunshine. And because with that plastic bottle, you've constrained that water to be very shallow, the ultraviolet rays, the UV rays in the sunshine can blast straight through it and kill or inactivate any waterborne diseases, any germs in that water. And so this technique is known as SODIS, or solar disinfection. And it's being taught around the developing world by you know, international development agencies to prevent something like a million people a year contracting or dying of easily preventable waterborne diseases. It's really simple, primitive tech and understanding that you can use to protect yourself from that, just using this principle of ultraviolet rays and plastic bottles. So I would also recommend, Julie, that in your <laughs> post-apocalyptic uh, survival backpack to pack or make sure you can find something like uh, an empty plastic bottle. But there's, there's also a whole range of other stuff, of, of simple life hacks you can use for everyday items to keep yourself going. And something like a condom can be used to store a huge volume of water if you can't find anything else like a glass or plastic bottle to put in. If, if you're, you know, kind of trekking through the wilderness and you've, for whatever hypothetical reason, only got a, a condom in your back pocket, you could use that to, to fill up with water in a kind of a stream or something like that. Um, as long as you're careful to not tear the condom open, because um, it's obviously very thin as well. Uh, a tampon can be used to save your life because if you rip open a tampon and kind of fluff it out you'll realize that it's a wad of really really fine cotton fibers which is fabulously easy to set alight it, it ends up making the perfect kindling so you can use a tampon to help get a fire started to cook food to kill the germs or keep the cold at bay if, if your life depends on it and you can use other everyday items like a pair of glasses to help start a fire. You can use something like a hairspray or chapstick or lipstick 
or kind of Vaseline, all of these are accelerants. They are very, very flammable and will help you get a fire started if it's cold and windy and damp and you really need to get a fire going to, to kind of to, to, to save your life or keep yourself comfortable. So basically just the everyday items of a handbag can be repurposed if you're ingenious to save your life in a survival situation. Now, it was interesting that Lewis mentioned Vaseline, as this is referred to in Protect and Survive as one of the items you should have in your first aid kit when you retreat into your fallout room. It doesn't specify why you should take Vaseline, but the assumption is that you might be advised to smear some of it around your nostrils. And when you venture outside, having heard the all clear, it may help stop radioactive dust entering your nose. A jar of Vaseline was also presented to Margaret Thatcher by a bunch of anti-nuclear activists and the Times, who reported the story, said the purpose of the Vaseline is not clear. But we can assume that's it, to keep one's nuclear nose clean. And in terms of raiding the supermarket shelves ahead of nuclear war, Lewis reminds us that as well as grabbing the Vaseline from the shelves, we could also look for iodine tablets. Yeah, exactly. So luckily, iodine is the sort of thing that's already quite easy to get your hands on because it's sold or it's available in camping shops because iodine is also another very good um, antiseptic to add to water in bulk to disinfect it so it's then safe to drink. So you can go into into a camping shop or an outdoors shop and get some some iodine, which would, would then also protect you from absorbing um, particular radioactive isotopes. The other sort of things I talk about in the knowledge is when this grace period is drawn to a conclusion, when it's, it's ended and you've scavenged and foraged everything that's still available and it's starting to run out or deteriorate or decay and you won't get access to it anymore. You need to know how to start making and doing things from scratch yourself. That The grace period gives you the opportunity to work all that out before it becomes a matter of life and death. And something like iodine can also be extracted from seaweed. Um, seaweed absorbs a lot of iodine out of seawater, so you can burn the iodine, uh, sorry, burn the seaweed and extract iodine out of it by, by trickling water through the ashes. Uh, incidentally, that same process will also extract uh, soda ash out of seaweed, which was used in history and we very, very useful for you rebooting civilization and rebuilding everything from scratch again after an apocalypse. So ash uh, is used for making glass. It's also used for making soap. So you can also make soap from absolute scratch yourself to protect yourself from disease using nothing more than animal fat or plant oil and seaweed or wood uh, ash, which you then trickle water through to get out that alkali for, for making the soap. And there we have mention of another supermarket staple, soap, another item which has been grabbed from our supermarket shelves recently. And we can understand people's desperation to get soap because in everyday life and after an apocalypse, good hygiene is essential. Listen to my previous episode called The Smell of Nuclear War, where we talk about the plans the government had for keeping the population relatively clean after war as they knew what would happen if they didn't lay down some basic guidance on 
on how we should go to the toilet after nuclear war when the sewage and plumbing systems have been smashed, of how to dispose of our waste properly, and the danger of not washing our hands afterwards. Because if we didn't follow these basic hygiene rules, then inevitable epidemics would arise and carry off the population who'd been lucky or unlucky enough to survive the nuclear war. Hygiene is crucial in being a civilization and also in trying to claw your way back to civilization. Here's Lewis again. Yeah, so a lot of healthcare isn't just about protecting yourself individualistically, but preventing you from passing germs onto other people or them passing their germs onto you. So public health. You can, as a, as a society, as a population, you can protect each other by stopping the transmission um, between each other. So in the modern world, it, it, it strikes me as inherently disgusting to go to the toilet and not immediately wash my hands afterwards. It is something that's drummed into us since we are a toddler and able to understand language that our parents are using at us is, have you been to the toilet? Wash your hands, Lewis. And that is 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 partly because you don't want to uh, pass germs basically from your bottom back into your mouth. So fecal oral transfer is one of the main ways that you pick up diseases and make yourself sick. You, you close the uh, life cycle, the disease cycle of several pathogens if you aren't exercising hygiene and cleanliness in that sense. But as again, as we're seeing with the coronavirus outbreak, washing your hands regularly just massively cuts the probability that many diseases are passed from one person to the next. You you start getting kind of um, protection as a herd if everyone exercises these public health measures. And so soap is really, really important for that. And as I said, soap is phenomenally easy to make. You need a fatty or oily substance, so animal fat or plant oil, and and you, you extract that from your own agriculture. If you are hunting animals to eat for meat or you're farming cows or sheep or goat after the apocalypse in some kind of homestead, you've got access to animal fat. And then you boil that animal fat or that plant oil with an alkali. And alkali are kind of chemically the opposites of acids. And you can extract alkalis from the natural world yourself if you trickle water through the ashes after burning seaweed um, or hardwood um, timber. So you can get either soda ash or potash from trickling water through the ashes of those two. And so, for example, for hundreds of years, one of the main cottage industries across across the west coast of Ireland and Scotland was people collecting seaweed, washed up on their beaches, digging pits on along the coastline and burning that seaweed to then extract soda ash, which was then fun- fundamentally important for society for making soap, for making glass, for making a huge range of other things that rely upon alkalis that, that you've been able to chemically produce for yourself. Now, talking about public health, um, Lewis, obviously I think of after a nuclear war, the fact that there'll be absolutely millions of, of corpses in the street, which mm. obviously creates a public health issue. So um, one of the main concerns of local councils was we have to get the bodies off the street and we have to bury yeah. them. But for that, of course, you would, unless you want to use lots and lots of manual labour, you will need fuel to you know run the, the diggers and the bulldozers. Mm-hmm. But, of course, fuel will very quickly run out. So 
I liked the reference in your book to um, vehicles fueled by booze <laughs> and by uh, gas bags. So could you tell us about that? Could we see a situation where we could bury our millions of dead using booze? Yeah, so, I mean, it depends on exactly the nature of the apocalypse that you have survived and how many of you have survived to form a community to try to rebuild and reboot civilization again afterwards. Um, because one of the things I suggest in the knowledge, literally chapter one, is actually you would probably, after the apocalypse, when you're trying to recover, you would want to get out of the cities. Firstly, because modern cities are unimaginably artificial constructs, that they only operate, they only work because there's an entire civilization behind the scenes maintaining the cities and providing everything that the city needs to run. So a city is not really a habitable environment after an apocalypse because there's no longer water coming out of the taps. And, you know, where would you go in, in your city? I mean, I don't know where I'd go in London to find a natural uh, stream where I could get drinking water from because we concreted, we've, you know, we've tarmacked over all the, all the rivers are now underground in London. Um, you, you've smothered an entire city with tarmac and concrete for roads and car parks. So it's not like you've even got access to the soil to start farming and agriculture for yourself. So you'd want to get out of a city to provide, on a more simplistic terms, the things that you need to support your life again from scratch. But also, what you've just hinted at, after a mass death event, after some kind of apocalypse, a lot of people have died, and, you know, without being too crude about it, those corpses lying around in the houses and the streets will start rotting and corrupting and will give off the most unimaginable stench, but also present a huge public health risk for, for people that are there. Like decaying bodies are sources of, of bacteria and disease. So you ideally might want to get out of the cities, find yourself a more rural place where you can settle down where you have got access to drinking water and soil that you can start putting seeds in the ground to grow your own food. Maybe near a forest where you've got access to timber and firewood that, you know, to heat and cook with because there's no more gas coming out of the hobs um, in, in the cities and towns. But your other question was also a very interesting one about how could you keep machinery and vehicles running? After the apocalypse, and, and a collapse of civilization, you would really, really want to be able to prevent your post-apocalyptic society from regressing to a, a simpler, more primitive state where you no longer have vehicles or cars or machinery. Because that machinery for us today replaces the back-breaking work we'd have to do ourselves. Without a car, you would have to walk 10 or 15 miles using your own legs to get somewhere. Without machinery, if you were trying to dig or quarry or mine, you'd have to use your own muscles to, to extract the raw materials from the environment and process them and grind them up or whatever it is you need to do with it. And a lot of machinery today is based around the beating heart of the internal combustion engine, which replaced the steam engine from, from the previous age of, of the kind of prime mover. And so the question therefore becomes, how do you keep cars running or combine harvesters running or fishing boats running um, or any other machinery running if you no longer have access to crude oil 
and the diesel petrol fuel that you would refine from it. And it turns out that you can run a car using nothing more than wood as fuel. You can chop up some logs, burn them, and run your car in the way you would run a, you know, a campfire or, or a fire in your, in your hearth to, to warm you. And the way that you do that is by exploiting some very interesting chemistry called pyrolysis. You basically break the wood down using the heat of its own combustion that then breaks down the complex molecules in the wood to give off very simple gases and vapours which are flammable, they're combustible. And you then draw off those flammable gases, inject them into the engine cylinder of your car, as you would do with a vapour from the petrol, and burn that so it explodes usefully inside the engine cylinder and drives your car forward. You can use pyrolysis or gasification of wood to drive a car with, with a very simple unit that looks a bit like a dustbin strapped to the, to the back of your car. Um, during the Second World War, with all of the fuel shortages back then, because both sides got so good at blowing up each other's oil refineries, um, there were over a million gasifier powered cars, a million wood-powered cars driving around the farms and the streets and the towns of war-torn Europe, where civilian society had kept itself running in this kind of localised apocalypse of the Second World War by being ingenious and adapting cars to run on wood as fuel, not crude oil. And from all of the research and examples I came across when I was when I was writing the book, writing the knowledge, this was one of them that stood out to me as just being so fulfilling and, and astonishing at that kind of ingenuity and resourcefulness of just normal everyday people. It gave me, gave me a lot of confidence that if this ever were to happen, if there ever were to be a, a kind of collapse of civilization or an apocalypse, and a small community trying to reboot again afterwards, that there's good reason to be optimistic that they could accelerate their passage back through history a second time round with, with kind of lessons like this. One other aspect I wanted to talk about, Lewis, is um, obviously agriculture, you know, the very basic yeah. aspect of, of growing food. And I know you talked about the seed banks, which we mm. have protected in nuclear-proof uh, shelters. Could you tell us a bit about them? And also, even if we weren't able to retrieve these seeds after a nuclear conflict, would they be much use in a radioactive or tainted soil? Yes, yeah, so sooner or later, as, as we've mentioned already, you're not going to be able to dine out on the leftovers of the past civilization forever, that, that food will run out, oil decay and go off. And by the time that grace period has ended, you've got to have worked out for yourself how to do farming, how, how to reboot agriculture from scratch yourself. Now, the main problem with that is if you go into the supermarket where we all rely on, on food nowadays, it doesn't actually provide the seeds that you would need to push into the ground to grow crops, to grow food for yourself. And indeed, most of the crops who grow around the world today are hybrid strains, which means if you grow one crop and then collect the seeds from that wheat, for example, and put them in the ground, they do not grow properly. That They've not been designed to propagate. They've been designed as a hybrid to be incredibly high-yielding. So what you need are heritage strains, slightly kind of older 
um, strains of crops or varieties of crops which breed true. You can put seed in the ground year after year, saving back some of your harvest to seed corn and have a self-sustaining agricultural system that, that goes on. And, and you can't get that kind of stuff just from a supermarket or anywhere else that you would know about in, in, in the world today. But there have been a, a couple of facilities constructed to preserve genetic diversity so we can breed back into crops uh, in the future in order enable to respond to challenges like climate change right now, for example. And one of the foremost facilities in the world is the Millennium Global Seed Vault, um, that it was constructed, it was tunnelled into the side of a mountain on the Arctic island of Svalbard. So even if the grid were to go down after some kind of apocalypse, just the permafrost of the rock of the mountain surrounding this facility would keep this library of seeds naturally refrigerated for, for thousands of years. And on the front of this uh, global seed vault in Svalbard, there, there is a double set of blast-proof doors. It could genuinely survive a nuclear exchange if one were to ever happen. So I give you, in the knowledge, a map of where Svalbard is and very helpfully provide for you the latitude and longitude coordinates of exactly where to pinpoint that in the world, exactly what address on the world to go to to find the Svalbard Global Seed Vault so you can reboot agriculture for yourself. And if you don't know where that address is, if you don't know how to read latitude and longitude coordinates, or just importantly, you don't know where you are right now, you don't know where in the world you are precisely, in one of the um, chapters in the knowledge, I explain from first principles how to work out where you're in the world and therefore what direction, how far you need to go to to get to any other coordinate, any other latitude or longitude position in the world. You know, the very basics of navigation which revolutionised our history in terms of exploration and sailing the high seas and, and trade and the building of our globalised world today. So you would go to Svalbard, collect these seeds you need for heirloom crops that will breed true, bring them back to you know your community and reboot agriculture from scratch. But I think you're right if you are surviving a nuclear holocaust specifically, You've got another problem, which is all of the radioactive fallout that is spread around the world on, you know, on the world's um, air currents and winds, and then settled back into the ground to turn the soil itself radioactive. Now, I'm not a specialist in this, so I don't know how long that radioactivity is likely to persist for. But for the sake of this thought experiment, if you've got several decades worth and again, it depends on how many survivors you are and what, what happened. But if you have a decade or two's worth of um, preserved food that you can scavenge, that might give you enough time that just natural rainfall has flushed out the worst radioactivity um, from the soil. These days, obviously, it's easy to be pessimistic. And so I asked Lewis how he feels about our prospects, not specifically about coronavirus, but about humanity's prospects in general of surviving an apocalypse, any apocalypse, take your pick, whether it's global pandemic, asteroid strike, nuclear war, a climate event. What are our chances of surviving it and of clawing our way back to some kind of civilization? 
But no, to be honest, I am, from, from the research I did for the knowledge, I am genuinely hopeful that if there ever were to be an apocalypse, and, and I don't think one is about to happen, I'm not some doomsday prepper or survivalist, I don't have the end of the world is nigh placard around my chest. Um, as I said, the knowledge I wrote as a, as a thought experiment, as a scientist, to try to uh, explore behind the scenes of how our modern world works and all that we just take for granted. That that was that was my motivation for for writing this this premise. But if it actually did happen, I think there is good reason to be optimistic that you could, as a community of survivors, uh, avoid another dark age like what happened after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. You could avoid another dark age. You could preserve the most useful knowledge and understanding and tools and technology that would enable you to then reboot civilization very, very quickly afterwards. What took us perhaps 10,000 years the first time round of domesticating crops, developing civilization, living in cities, and then through all of the history of developing internal combustion engines and antibiotics and electricity and radio... You could leapfrog through all of that and potentially rebuild a technological civilization in perhaps a century or two. And in terms of patching things up and getting back to reasonably close to where we are now, which which type of apocalypse would be the <laughs> the, the least bad in terms of so, clawing our way back? <laughs> so if I were to give you a, a menu at the restaurant at the end of the world. So there's a list on this menu of different apocalypses. So things like an asteroid strike or a global nuclear exchange, nuclear war, or a super volcano eruption or a coronal mass ejection, super flare from the sun, um, or a global pandemic. What I would recommend that you chose off that menu, knowing that you're going to be one of the survivors having to rebuild everything from scratch afterwards, I would strongly recommend you don't go for asteroid strike or global nuclear war because, as we talked about, that would leave the world in such devastation afterwards. You would struggle to reboot quickly again after that. It it might be the case that it would disrupt the modern social order so badly that everything could slide back to scattered bands of hunter-gatherers. It wouldn't wipe humanity to extinction, but it could knock us basically back to square one on the grid of of snakes and ladders. And what I would um, argue would be the best way for the world to end, from the point of view of the survivors rebuilding afterwards, would be something like a global pandemic, that the sort of thing we see in uh, like The Last of Us or 28 Days Later or this kind of sci-fi conception of, of the apocalypse, because that would wipe out the people relatively quickly, but leave all of the stuff left behind. You, you would give the survivors the maximum possible grace period to give them that opportunity to work out how to make and do things for themselves once again and not be so reliant on just popping into a supermarket to, to get what we do in, in our modern life. So I think something like a global pandemic could be um, the best apocalypse to recover from. So there, Lewis leaves us with some grounds for optimism, unless, of course, there's a nuclear war. A reminder that Lewis's book is called The Knowledge. It's by Lewis Dartnell, and there's a website which accompanies the book full of additional info, how-to guides and short videos. 
That's the-knowledge.org. You can also find Lewis on Twitter at Lewis underscore Dartnell. And of course, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell. Followers will have seen I was celebrating on Friday as I got 100 patrons. That's 100 listeners who donate money each month to support my nuclear work and, of course, to help fund this podcast. As I was tweeting my joy and surprise at having 100 patrons, someone else signed up. Gmail pinged me another email, making it 101 patrons. So I really am so grateful, especially these days when we're all a bit shaky and worried. So thank you to my 100th and 101st patrons, John Cinnamon and Debbie. If you want to join my Patreon, please look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me also thank the three Bens who are patrons, Ben Capper, Ben Grabham and Ben Taylor. I hope you've enjoyed this special episode and that it's given you a little bit of entertainment or even, as Lewis said, some grounds for optimism in these scary times. It's not often my podcast has anything optimistic to say, but here we are. I had to drag someone else on board to try and get a little bit of to try and get a little bit of optimism. So thank you, of course, to Lewis Dartnell for speaking with us for this episode of The Atomic Hobo. And I'll be back next Sunday. Probably not with an impressive guest. It'll probably be just me and nuclear horror.